So I want to give this a little bit of a preface here. I'm going to be talking about something that's going to involve Aleister Crowley. This is not going to be some sort of big biographical thing about him, yet I might do something later. Uh, but right now, it's just going to be talking about kind of a specific thing of, of Thelema. Now, I am not a Thelemite. I am not in the Ordo Templi Orientalis, Orientalis or, uh, that, the OTO. I'm not in the Golden Dawn. I'm not affiliated with any of these things whatsoever. I am not also particularly a big fan of Aleister Crowley himself. Uh, he, from everything I can see, is an abusive sociopath, or at the very least, an abusive narcissist. He was not a good person. He was not someone that I really, in a lot of ways, should be followed. And in a lot of ways, a lot of people with personality disorders might have. He did a lot of research and a lot of sort of the work, whatever the work might be, in this case, sort of magical stuff. In other cases, it might be, you know, whatever sort of thing, you know, uh, you know, um, trying to think of something, you know, someone who might be good at something. Uh, whatever it might be, they might have done the work, but that doesn't mean that that gives them the right to be an asshole. And by all accounts, Aleister Crowley was very much an asshole. Uh, abusive, sexually manipulative, um, kind of a piece of crap. So I am in no way, shape, or form sitting here and and espousing the, the wonders and and delights and everything of Crowley at all. I, I, I'm not a Thelemite, not in the OTO, not in gold, not in anything like that. But as he was someone who did sort of do the work, especially at a time, you know, get that sort of later Victorian uh, and era into, was it Edwardian, I think, after that, and then, you know, early late 19th, early 20th century uh, with a lot of the way sort of our, our sort of Western culture through England and the United States was sort of becoming and, and transitioning and then the, the world wars and everything else like that. There was a lot of, you know, again, still heavily, heavily hyper-moralized in a, in a really reductionist and distorted and in probably a lot of ways psychic you know emotionally psychologically even psychically sort of destructive ways that sort of really Victorian times especially in in England was really repressed and, and really had a lot of you know not great things going on for it. I mean as much as I love Sherlock Holmes and Dickens and all this other stuff like that and and Oscar Wilde I mean there there was a lot of things there was a lot of psychologically not great things that came out of that that we're still dealing with now. The United States has always sort of had something like that through the the puritanical foundings of things, and then you know the the sort of forced indoctrination of certain uh, sort of cultural practices that are very British, but are you know kind of going against a, a lot of what people are, and that idea of when you get very you know, the abstinence only thing of anything, and you get very hyper moral and very hyper super strict on things like that, you're gonna have, and, and you get very suppressive and oppressive 
Then there's that dark side, there's... <coughs> Pardon me. That dark side, that subconscious, is going to have to come out in some way. And um, it might be drinking, it might be abuse, it might be making things uh, sort of problematic in, in terms of maybe sexuality or your psychology or anything else like that. Uh, so, and then also everyone, as, as we kind of still are, is very, you know, centric. So, you know, colonial centric. So whether it's, you know, England or United States and, and kind of these specific cases, it was very much, we're better than everyone else. And when we go into a place, we're going to make it better whether it's by destroying everyone who's here and stealing everything from it, or by stealing everything from it and killing everyone that's here and indoctrinating everyone else there into our very narrow scope of thinking. So when you have people like Aleister Crowley or Madame Blavatsky or some of these other people who go into places like India or China and Japan and, and actually honestly well, I say honestly, I'm, I'm probably making some assumptions there, but, but actually go in to learn from those meditative and philosophical, even magical systems, honestly, as opposed to, like, um, was it the Golden Bow, I think is the name of the book, Fraser? And everyone kind of is, oh, well, this is a great thing about learning about shamanism and these other cultures. Well, no, it's really not. Uh, because even though he's giving some information about it, it is hyper-racist and super, super culturalist that even, even trying to give a certain, oh, well, the times that they were in, have, you know, trying to, trying to keep that mindset of, uh, well, th he's writing for the time that he is in his thing. Even with that, it's super racist and it's really hard to read coming from our place now in the 21st century, uh, and and especially if you're like me and you have a certain amount of interest and care, and and even love for for different indigenous cultures and and sort of shamanistic practices and, and animism and things like that. If you have any respect for these things or even human beings at all, reading Fraser's Golden Bow is gonna be very difficult for you. So in that sort of midst comes people like Crowley or Madame Blavatsky and in some ways are showing that hey you know hey Golden Dawn and some of these other magical systems that suspiciously also look like uh, things like what goes on in a Christian church even in Protestantism which is which you know try to be Protestant one of the things they try to do is get away from the clearly and obviously pagan heathen influences of Catholic mass and the 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 ritual mastic, bleh, ritual magic practices that are part of uh, Catholic mass because it is it's ritual magic you know stemming from older systems from Greece and Egypt and everything else like that uh, but I, even Protestantism is still ritual magic it's it's more watered down it's further away from its roots and any sort of context where you're saying, hey, you don't have access to the source creator sort of energy 
except through me or through something else is automatically creating a separation you know we we already have a certain separate uh, separative uh, conditioning through our hyper materialistic hyper reductionary idea of science but we've been indoctrinated with that for hundreds and hundreds of years through the sort of Abrahamic Yahweh cult religions because they're saying in order for you as an individual to come into grace with the in contact with the the sort of Godhead the creator the source nature Tao, whatever it is you want to call it you have to go through these series of things and these series of people you're cutting people off from that and you're separating people from that and these other sources actual ritual magic actual real meditative uh, and and energetic and spiritual practices from yeah like india china japan these other places like that um and then other forms like gnosticism which you know the church destroyed because it's saying you don't need these hyper huge organizations to do anything you're supposed to do the work yourself so you know when when there are things like gnosticism or sufism or kabbalah in these these larger abrahamic contexts that are teaching you too within the context of whichever sort of abrahamic path you might be going on or if you're coming from it from outside it's just something that interests you uh, it's teaching you, and you've got to do this stuff yourself. So we have we're we're in a world of hyper materialist reduction, whether it's science or religion, and and we're in a world of of separation, and then in comes and and then separation as well as repression and oppression, and then in comes this you know kid who's got some money. Um, and you know dad died at a formative time and he was raised by a hyper-religious mother and and in that hyper-religious way that becomes abusive so now you have the nature he probably you know maybe from mom or maybe from dad i don't know but wherever he got the sort of i'm talking about crowley now wherever he got the sort of genes to be a personality disorder that was epigenetically now kicked on by the traumas of dad dying and however dad might my dad might have you know had some influence even when he was alive and kicking these things on too but then you have this hyper religious mother in an abusive fashion and that's going to epigenetically kick on those other sort of things so in this in a larger world context in his individual context not really set up for being that great of a person that being said there is absolutely no proof that he was cognit cognitively deficient enough that he couldn't control his behaviors and actions so he is still responsible for being an abusive asshole now that's out of the way I, again I felt the need to preface this because again I'm not a fan of his personally but as someone who has done a, a crap ton of research and dedicated their life to this, whatever the, the influence for that dedication might be, there's a lot of things in his sort of canon of work that might be useful for an individual who is, regardless of whatever sort of spiritual or meditative or energetic 
uh, energetic meaning like qigong or tai chi or yoga or anything else like that or magic or anything else like that that is helpful now some of the things are not I'll preface this now I've read a number of Crowley's works and there's a lot of things that I look back after reading and I kinda hate that I wasted my time for it for example Moonchild I was reading I think I got the idea that Moonchild might be something that would have been influential to at least Mark Frost maybe David Lynch as well but at least Mark Frost when they were creating Twin Peaks I got the idea because Mark Frost wrote a couple Twin Peaks sort of dossier you know sort of fictional dossier books uh, based around the third season of Twin Peaks that came out now four years ago in 2017 and in that I kind of got the idea that oh look there seems to be some ritual magic stuff that they're talking about and that some somewhere was mentioned Moonchild I wonder was like oh I wonder if that could be an inspiration uh, for Laura Palmer I eventually read Moonchild and it was one of the worst things I've ever read it is absolutely wholly completely self-aggrandized masturbatory bullshit it's awful he he said it's basically there's a lot of things Crowley wrote that really seems like yeah like someone who is emotionally and psychologically stuck at puberty you know you kinda get that 13 to 15 year old boy mindset um, where actually tons and tons and tons of people still seem to be stuck and that's where he was it's it's just paramasturbatory bullshit it's he's he's not even masking people he's certain certain people he's making fun of like Mathers and some of these other people both the the wizened old teacher and the young hotshot uh, you know sexy sort of guy and everything they're both him he Mary sued himself both into in, into the two heroic characters of this it's not bad enough if you put yourself in one character I can kind of understand it but he made himself both with that and then the whole point of you know two-thirds or more of the book of everything that's going on uh, just pretty much just gets uh, thrown out the window is this the worst it's not even like oh well he was trying to, to do this other thing like another culture you know that you know like if he was doing something that might be more Chinese or Indian away from the Aristotelian sort of poetics idea of story no it was just bullshit he just he just threw out the whole point of the book and then the, the last part of it was this this jumbled mess of after he threw this out then all this stuff didn't matter and then it was uh screw you I'm just gonna do this other stuff anyone anyway. I'm, I'm so awesome and good he's got a um, a one-act play called Household Gods, I believe. Same thing. Hyper-ego-driven, pubescent, masturbatory garbage. And there's several things that I've read of his that are exactly the same way. There are a couple things, however, if you are interested in meditation, energy work, again, energy work, meaning whatever school from that. I personally do you know, Chinese internal, so Tai Chi Chuan, Xing Yi Chuan, Bagua Zhang, Qigong, meditation, standing energy, but you can do all that, or yoga, or even Reiki, or, or you know, anything from any of these other places in the whole world that I, I haven't even heard of. Or meditation, or if, if you're interested in any sort of 
you know, magic systems, and even even if you just like the occult, it's not something you're going to practice. You're just sort of fascinated by it. Like you know, I'll, I'll I and I know many other people will watch a lot of like serial killer and cult and murder documentaries. We're never ever going to ever do anything like that, but it's a fascinating thing anyway. Even if it's just that, there are a couple things that Crowley wrote that I think that I've read that are. Uh, may be helpful for your understanding with that. First one is Book of the Law, and the other one would be Magic Without Tears. Now, Magic Without Tears is basically a collection of letters that he wrote to a student, kind of helping uh, teach them kind of how to do stuff and, and ways to think and, and encourage them in the practice and stuff like that. Book of the Law is supposedly something that was an automatic writing thing that happened to him and he just sort of continued as he went. Uh, he calls it being dictated to him, and I'm kind of quoting here from the introduction. This book was dictated in Cairo between noon and 1 p.m. on three successive days, April 8th, 9th, and 10th in the year of 1904. Uh, so I think, if I remember correctly, this was on a honeymoon, and there's stuff in here that influenced the rest of his career and and shows up again and again and we'll have all over the place with this now the thing that you'll hear and you'll see written and all this other stuff um, and you'll hear it in 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 stuff from the time, you'll hear it in research with that, you'll see it all over the place, and you'll see it a lot of the times, a lot of the times, with douchebags. Really jerk-ass idiots who are trying to use this as an excuse for them to be jerk-ass idiot douchebags. And that is, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Now that is the big thing of Thelema. If, if Thelema had to have a mission statement, vision statement, or catchphrase, that's what it would be. Uh, and then it goes on, there is no law beyond do what thou wilt. Now, that sounds like, hey, just do what you want to do, and as long as it's something you want to do, it doesn't matter, it, that's, that's the law. Well, it's not. And one of the reasons for that is because these things aren't just in terms of will and law and everything that we just think on a very cursory, simple, top layer level. Now, as if you if you take this the way that you're supposed to take any sort of religious scripture. I don't care if it's the Bible or the Quran or or the Tao Te Ching or anything else like that. You're not supposed to take every single thing that's in there literally. The literalists for these things are doing themselves and everyone else every bit of harm. Emotionally, psychologically, meditatively, and intellectually, spiritually. You are harming yourself by taking these things literally. For example, there is a Taoist scripture, I think it's called 
eight ounces of yin and eight ounces of yang make 16 ounces or one pound of elixir in rough translation and in it there are things that are talking about cinnabar and lead and mercury and the crucible and you ingest these things and after 10 months you give birth to this whole thing and it's it's a very interesting scripture it's a very interesting uh, text and if you are going to practice sort of Taoist sort of stuff it's good to read in order to uh, be able to understand what actual alchemy is and I think the version I have is Thomas Cleary who's, who's translated like everything has a four volume collection of Taoist classics and I think I want to say it's in the second volume of that but if you take Cinnabar, which is, I think, what they you have a chemical process with this cinnabar thing, and that's how you extract mercury out of it. And you swallow that, and you swallow lead, and you swallow mercury. Well, you're going to die, which is what happened to the Taoists who took these things literally. You're not supposed to take these things literally. It's all symbolic. Alchemy, actual alchemy, has nothing, nothing at all to do with trying to take actual physical things like lead or base metals like iron or whatever and turning it into gold physical actual tactile reductionalist materialist gold it has nothing to do with that at all you mix these things together you're not going to make some lustrous pearl or philosopher's stone that is going to now imbue you with magical powers and let you physically live forever and all that none of that that's all bullshit it's all symbolic. Actual alchemy is more like being a blue ghost in Star Wars, a blue force ghost in Star Wars. The idea is you refine your energy, your mind, your intent, your emotions, and even parts of your physical body in order so that your consciousness continues beyond death. You become as spiritually purified and perfected and enlightened of a being as you can possibly be in a physical body and then once that expires you are now a quote immortal end quote and your consciousness continues so actual alchemy has more to do with being like Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi than trying to get rich turning regular stuff into gold the regular stuff the lead, the, the lead or the iron is your body the the fires of the and your the, the crucible is like your body the the mercury is your mind the lead is uh, I forget what the lead is but all that has symbolism and the the fires that are used to ignite the crucible to move these things are your energy and your intent and the the pearl or the philosopher's stone or the gold that's produced from your spiritual work from your meditations, from your energy work, from the, the actively engaging in certain activities and stuff like that in certain specific ways, you are that thing. And by you, I don't mean just your, your body that's going to eventually get decrepit and die. We mean the actual you of you. When you strip away the ego, you strip away the conditioning, you strip away everything else, the actual fundamental you that is a piece of 
the creator or the source or God if you want to use that word as loaded as it is the fundamental part of you that is part of that is left over and that is what he means by will do what thou wilt the wilt the will that's used in this means the the actual God mind or the the enlightened mind the the true Tao the true Buddha mind the the true thing that is you without before you were born without anything conditioned into you you know and even even if you hear talking about you know knowledge and conversations of the holy guardian angel it's not a thing separate from you it's not some golden-haired Adonis with rippling pecs and abs and huge luscious sexy wings coming at you telling you cool stuff uh-uh it's you as well but again it's not the you that that's just sort of the alert problem-solving you know beta um, uh, was it brainwave sort of thing and I'm not using beta in some sort of douchebag idiot oh I'm an alpha male no I'm talking about the actual brainwave states you know like alpha's relaxing beta is alert problem solving delta's I was like deep sleep and theta is highly meditative or I think it's something like that that's what I'm talking about so that beta alert problem solving without that without all the sort of you know either psychological trauma or really good stuff or whatever that you might have grown up with without um, anxiety or depression without um, lust, greed, uh, you know, the, you know the the seven deadly sins, you know, pride, with all all that stuff away, the you that's you stripped away from all of that is the true you, and that you, I mean, that you at that point in time doesn't even have a, a meaning so much as it's that that thing. The if you take you know, again, God's a loaded word, but if you take the universe as a, as a sentient being, if you take the idea that consciousness is a fundamental part of the universe, and it is learning about itself through each individual sentient conscious being, that, that will is that pure, stripped-down universe learning about itself. Um, the way he talks about it is, quote, this means that each of us stars is to move on our true orbit as marked out by the nature of our position, the law of our growth, and the impulse of our past experiences. All events are equally lawful, and every one necessary in the long run, for all of us in theory, but in practice, only one act is lawful for each one of us at any given moment. Therefore, duty consists in determining to experience the right event from one moment of consciousness to another. At what point of that does that say go out and, and be a sexual deviant and complete bully asshole to people. It doesn't. If we talk about, and again, some of this is also encoded in the language of, of Victorian times as well, in, in a way of trying to be hyper-scientific, in a way to try and strip away uh, any sort of what we might consider uh, supernatural or paranormal sort of stuff now and everything. And these are the people that believed that there could never be catastrophes on earth because there were catastrophes in the Bible if it's in the Bible then we can't have it on earth so and that mindset that science and that was science 
that scientific gatekeeping mindset happened even when the Alvarezes came up with proof that there was a really huge, you know, meteor impact around Mexico, and that's probably what killed the dinosaurs. Now we think of it, you know, here in 2021, we think of that, well, that's established scientific fact. When they, and I believe it was the Alvarez's, a father and son team, when they, you know, came up with their data, their valid and reliable data for that, all of the little uh, scientific gatekeepers of the time said, no, 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 you can't do that because that's a catastrophe and we can't have catastrophes because there is catastrophes in the Bible, so we can't have that in real life. There was a guy who talked about, and Graham Hancock talks about this in um, a couple of his books, especially Magicians of the Gods in America before, where, you know, all the, the stuff in the Northwest that's like hyper scat, like scablands, things just torn out by glaciers. Everyone just thought it had to be slow moving stuff over time. And there's this other guy that so was like, no, the only way to do this is by very fast. By very fast, I mean, it, it, it's not happening over tens of thousands of years. It's happening much quicker than that. And everyone, you know, eventually that guy had so much data and so much evidence that it, people were like, yeah, okay, well, this must have happened, but it happened in several little ones instead of one big one because we can't have a catastrophe. Well, these are the sort of scientific gatekeepers that you were kind of coming up against with this. And, and you know, there might have been also a way of talking about it in terms of Crowley's mind of a way that is going to sort of translate his experiences and the things he's learned in these other places to a Western and, you know, 19th, 20th century English-like audience. So almost like, um, you know, Alan Watts was, was a nice bridge between being able to, to take things that are very difficult to, to translate and often get translated in, this, again, very cursory sort of ways and easily misunderstood and explaining them. You know, his ideas, where he talks about karma and everything like that. For example, now, the way we talk about mindfulness is in a very watered-down, bullshit sort of, um, again, reductionist way that, that is almost has very little to do with what actual mindfulness, if we're talking about it through you know, the context of, of like Buddhism or Taoism or something like that is actually saying. And I know this, and I know this is how it happens, because when I was working mental health, I was even a beta tester. I think I was the only person in, in the lower of the, you know, kind of top two tiers of the thing with, uh, to be able to do that. I think I was the only one without a master's degree doing the beta testing for it because I have experience with mindfulness stuff and quite frankly, I'm pretty good at, as a therapist. But, um, and yeah, the, the only thing I found that was interesting in the program was there was some cool stuff about the brain and being able to describe the way some things are going on with the brain. The actual mindfulness stuff wasn't really mindfulness. It, at best, it was distraction. And even coping skills nowadays, we don't talk about coping skills as real coping skills. Again, it's just distraction. You don't actually deal with what it is. And this is part of the problem. I'm going to digress here for a second. This is part of the problem when you have nothing but social workers trying to run um, mental health, uh, fearing and shunting aside psychology in favor of trying to rescue everyone because everyone is, you know, feeling bad about themselves in some way and if they can rescue everyone then they don't have to deal with their own problems and I, I know a lot of 
uh, genuinely good mental health workers and therapists and stuff like that who are do have gone through the social worker as opposed to psychology route but there's a lot of people who've gone it but you know there's a glut at least around here of social worker stuff and it's not helping um but again and then so they get this this very surface cursory level putrescent level of blah of mindfulness and it's not accurate to what's really described there so even with this as I said, you know, do without will shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. So automatically, just with those two lines, it's saying, do without will shall be the whole of the law, so your will, and if love is the law, your love and your will are automatically combined. And love in this case isn't just, man, I love my, I do love my pug, but I love my pug, I love my cat, I really love chocolate, you know, I mean, I love my friends, it's not talking about that. This is capital L love. And and in this, again, it has that larger, much larger context. And love in this case is the interconnection between all things. The interconnection, all sentient, all cognizant beings, everything that's a piece of that higher being that's sort of it, that that is influencing and, and coming down into this sort of three-dimensional realm to learn about itself that is love that that universe that god or Tao or nature or steve or creator or grandfather whatever you want to call it that interconnected between all things that's what he means by love so again it's not just well love well, i really i really think this girl's hot so i love her and then i want to have sex with her and then i'm doing what i need to do to be an awesome wizard no you know, uh, you know, love is a law, love under will. Love under will, I mean, I always saw that as almost, if you look at it, um, you can almost think of it like numerator, denominator sort of thing, uh, like a fraction. But it's love, the will is supporting the love. The, the true self, the thing that is truly you, that true spiritual thing that is you, is what is supporting that total interconnectedness. And to be able to do that, you know, you, you have to strip away all the, the, the sort of rough stuff that's going on to get to the true you in order to be connected with those whole things. Again, it's enlightenment. And it's basically, he was talking about, you know, we're used to saying, or hearing words like awakening or enlightenment. That's really what's going on. And if you, you know, you go to anyone who's a real sort of magic practitioner, someone who's actually done the research, you know, you can look at um, Jason Louvre or especially like Damien Eccles, all these people too, they're, they're going to tell you that it's, you know, magic isn't about, okay, you wiggle your hands or you wiggle your nose, woo, 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 you make shit levitate or you change people's minds to want to have them have sex with you or all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's literal you know a gold bullion raining down from your ceiling like no none of that's magic you're you're using that true will to to, to kind of influence things you know some of some of the things is you know it might be tipping the scales and certain things in your favor like you know making sigils or, or doing the rituals or stuff like that 
you know, if if the probability of doing something, I think I got, I want to say, I think this is a Gordon White analogy. I want to make sure I give credit where due. Where, you know, if if it's a, you know, a million to one shot about what you want, you know, small w want, if it's a million to one shot and you make an awesome sigil and you charge it in a way and you release it and you do all the stuff kind of, you know, quote, right, end quote, you might make that a one in a hundred thousand chance. So you've definitely tipped the odds in your favor, but it's still kind of out there. You know, and you're not going to, you know, rule someone's conscious mind or anything else like that either. So again, you might have tipped some scales in your favor, but, you know, if the probability is still very high, you can only do so much because, again, you're not, it's not a movie. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a comic book. It's not a TV show. You know, it's not Dungeons and Dragons. You know, you, you, you're not actually warping self. The, the, the way you're changing reality is you're changing your consciousness. When you change your consciousness, you will change your reality and your perception of reality. And the more that you can do that, the more things, you know, it's almost more like the universe is kind of talking to you. And the more that you can feel those, like, rivers and things. So it's like playing push hands in Tai Chi. If you're trying to shove someone all the damn time, you're, you're, you're going to get knocked over. You're going to fall. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get thrown. You're going to get locked up. You're going to get hit, all this other stuff like that. But if you learn, okay, well, the other person's pushing you, yield and redirect. And you, you know, you sort of yield and redirect and wait for the time and wait for the time. Keep yourself from becoming collapsed. You use the proper energies and all of a sudden, oh, you feel something and then you go for it. And then the other person gets knocked off balance or you put them in a hold or you throw them or something like that. That's what we're talking about. So, you know, the will, the consciousness of the true you and the interconnection between yourself and everything else is really what it what he's talking about you know and and separation is the ultimate the ultimate um, illusion in in this in this context so it is the ultimate illusion everything is interconnected and even even if you look at like things like synchronicities or something like that synchronicities are you can see them as sort of like the universe responding. So it's almost like you're having a, um, a discussion. You're kind of talking to yourself almost, but you're having a discussion with the universe. And, and synchronicities, the more they increase, you know, some of them might actually be a symbol of something. And some of them might just be, hey, you're communicating with me. So here's a couple... To, to, to sort of help illustrate this these are a couple of things that have actually come to me through meditation now you could argue you know if and again let me let me preface it with this let me put a preface another preface in everyone wants to argue about their own thing their own road their own avenue their own lingo and things like that many 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 times what happens is that everyone is saying the same damn thing. They're just using slightly different words for it. 
I remember getting into like knockdown, drag out screening matches with people in my family, and then stopping and saying, "Hey, time time out a minute, Anumunita, you're saying X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. Well, they're saying Z, Y, X. So you're essentially saying the same thing, just slightly different. And this is what happens, you know, with with a lot of things. There's a book I'm going to kind of quote from later too: is Magic, Shamanism, and Taoism, the I Ching in Ritual and Meditation by Richard Herrn. And he's, and this is just one example of many things, but he's bringing in a bunch of stuff that, and a bunch of language for Taoism stuff, and and the the shaman Wu before them. That is almost verbatim the same stuff you'll see if you look through Western ritual magic. Even the accoutrements are very very much the same. Western magic or wicker or whatever might use a dagger, but in China they're using a sword, you know, a jian, double-edged sort of long sword. You know, robes, vestments, bells, candles, altars, incense, and they all have the same function. The idea of elements and using the elements, you know, the Chinese system has five elements that are slightly different than the four we're used to seeing in the West or even with indigenous cultures. Um, but it has the same idea. You have the same thing, whether it's, you know, everything is in a circle, and that's a creative cycle. Each element kind of helps lead, create to the other one, and you have things that either cross or, or cut across in a star, or a star pattern. That's the destructive pattern. You can use these things in these different ways to invoke or evoke or banish or any of that, and it's all it's it's all kind of using this saying the same damn thing. It's just using slightly different language. And even now that we we can start adding in some quantum theory to some of this stuff too, if we're talking about the idea of consciousness being fundamental, consciousness being able to, and intention and intent being able to now uh, change physical things like double slit experiment and all this other stuff like that it's it's kind of the same thing I mean you can look at some of the stuff of Dr. Dean Radin I mean they're they're going in and they're doing these things these experiments that are valid and reliable and valid and reliable at a degree that's higher than what would be just generally considered to be acceptable in like university lab settings and things like that so there's actual and again actual valid reliable scientific data that's coming out with it but the gatekeepers are going oh nope this challenge is what we don't like so screw it and, you know uh, they did that to Einstein and Einstein kind of turned around and did that to quantum people so you know the cycles continue um, but you know all this so whether whether you want to say I got these things from my you know just my subconscious processing and eventually slowly kicking these two sort of quotes out or if you're into western magical stuff holy and guardian angel or whatever it is whatever the reason for it might be there are two things i think help kind of illustrate this that again came to me just as I was meditating one is alchemy is the end of self-defining symbolism so the self-defining symbolism that ego that I'm this, I'm that. I, my name is, you know, John, and I'm, you know, a, you know, a white American, and you know, I was born male, little gender fluid. 
I like, you know, so all, again, this is defining stuff and all these things are relatively intangible. You can say, okay, well, your white skin and, you know, male bits are tangible sort of things, but there are also things that I'm, I'm, I'm using as a, in a three-dimensional sense to define things in a very specific manner. And the real alchemy is getting rid of all that stuff in the mind, in the psyche, in, in the subconscious and everything else. Like So the subconscious and the conscious become one and there, there's no separation with that. And that idea of like, well, I, well, you know, who are you? Well, you know, if they ask who are you and you start listing these things, those things in, in a certain level aren't real. And, and by that, I mean, it's like it, because there's the real you who you are beyond all that, without all that, that alchemy is really trying to get to. It's the release, it's release discernment of patterns, see the true path. So the patterns that we create to define ourselves and define our daily lives, we kind of got to get rid of that in order to really be able to kind of see the universe for as it is okay so that's that's really what it kind of is amounting to here now I mentioned the magic shamanism and Taoism book there's a couple things I want to read from with that that are going to kind of continue to uh, illustrate that uh, one is here I'm trying to find it sorry So he's talking about, this is the beginning of a, of a section called Wu Wei, the art of not doing. Wu Wei is, you know, part of, you know, Chinese uh, philosophy and Taoism. And again, it's one of those things that really gets sort of a bad rap of, as it's, it's non-doing, and people just think, oh, that means you don't do anything, so you're just like a bum or whatever. And, you know, that's not what it's talking about. You know, we might say, okay, non-doing, and that's a very literal translation. But again, the, the cultural significance behind it is, it's that, again, that, that chattering monkey mind, that anxiety mind, that ego mind is sort of grasping at things and just being able to let that go. You know, you still have to eat. You still have to go to the bathroom. You still have to sleep. You know, it's not saying that you can't have you know, friends and families and loved ones, and we live in a world now where you got to do work and all this other stuff. Yeah, you can do all that and still do nothing because you're, you know, the the you're doing these actions kind of just because they have to be done and and to go about doing that. But it, again, it goes back to the mindset and the will and the release of the ego and stuff. So this is actually something he quotes from Labor Aleph from Alistair Crowley. So then the life of non-action is not for thee. The withdrawal from activity is not the way of the Tao. But rather, so in other words, just not doing anything, you know, just sit on your ass not being anything, isn't what they're talking about. But rather the intensification and making universal of every unit of thine energy on every plane. So it's, it's mindfulness. It's your intent, your mind, your effort, all these things are laser streamlined into one thing in all, all parts. So not just, you know, physically doing, but then all the sort of higher 
mental, spiritual planes and everything with, with that too. This is mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't just, oh, well, I got mad, so then I sat down and I colored something for 15 minutes. Now I feel calm and I'm going to go duper 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 derp, whatever. And yeah, I guess I can talk about how, you know, Sandy kind of pissed me off, whatever, I'm sorry. That's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is true mindfulness. The way mindfulness is supposed to be is without all that other stuff in your head, you are doing what you're doing to the very best of your abilities in a very specific manner without having all this other stuff clouded on into your head and into your into your activities. You're doing this because it's just the thing you have to do right now. You get it done to the best of your abilities and move on to the next thing. You're not worrying about the stuff that came before. You're not worrying about you know the stuff that's going to come later on. It's this in here right now, full attention, move on. Uh, so the next thing is, and this is, this is almost more of an explanation. This actually comes from Richard Heron himself. The important point to remember about any ritual object is that it is focused concentration and energized enthusiasm of the magician who wields it that gives that instrument its power. The tool itself merely acts as a convenient vehicle for the magician's will, again, capital W, and again, that true self, and possesses no active virtues that the practitioner does not himself invest in it by his own force. This shows the need for regular training and development of essential personal faculties, such as visualization and thought control. It also explains why those would-be occultists who believe that the mere possession of magical implements in a ritual, ritually theatrical setting is enough to ensure occult success are forever doomed to failure. As they don't get it. And that's an end quote, by the way. That's not the point of what's going on. You know, all that stuff is, is just there to kind of help get you into the mindset and get you into that focus thing, whether it's a bell or a robe or whatever that stuff. It's like, all right, while this is going on, I'm as focused in and concentrated as I can be as this. And the more you do it, the more it becomes a lifestyle. The more that mindfulness, the more the focus, the more that you're kind of stripping away all that other garbage stuff to get to you, the true you, the more you do that, the more that it's easier to do and the more it begins to take over and do it itself. So for example, I've done every day since I started doing internal martial arts with Tai Chi, with my teacher, 22 years ago now, 22 years and some change, 22 years this month actually, there has not been a single day where I haven't put it, it put in at least 15 to 20 minutes, even under crazy harmful, really upsetting, all sorts of majorly insane circumstances. I've always put that in. It's a major part of my lifestyle. And if I go for a couple days, maybe I'm working a lot of time or I'm running around doing all the other stuff and I have two, three days where it's only 15, 20 minutes and maybe one or two of those days I don't get in my sitting or something, it starts changing the way I think, changing the way I feel, changing the way I sleep. You know, my, my, it, it is, the lifestyle is upset. You know, my energy and, and the things I'm doing to help keep myself in a correct sort of state start getting ruffled. 
and all that. So it becomes something that is part of you then and and continues with you as you go. So you know when you get into some of these these occult things and and yeah, you know, robes and all this other stuff. I know Damien Eccles was talking about um, the whole thing for that, if we're, we're talking about sort of a, a Western ritual magic stance, is a way to get to that enlightened state and in a sort of faster and efficient manner. So, where some of the Eastern, you know, quote unquote Eastern sort of things might be okay, well, you end up going over this path of trying to be, you know, the, the, the perfected being, the enlightened being, might take lifetimes. The point of Western ritual magic is to get you there in this lifetime. So, not necessarily circumventing so much as being able to be efficient with it, you know, and, and have the mindset of you're doing it in this lifetime and now. So again, and none of that, none of that includes using this stuff as an excuse to be an asshole. None of it. Absolutely none of it. Even Crowley himself, again, not someone I'm a hyper fan of, was talking about. Uh, so we have here so what I'm going to do here, I, I perused through uh, Magic Without Tears, which again, like a series of letters to a student, that again continues to describe some of this stuff like that. So this is his definition for magic. He's got the K at the end of it. Magic is the science and art, quoting, of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Now, both change and will are capitalized. Magic is the science of understanding oneself and one's conditions. It is the art of applying that understanding in action. Every man has an indefeasible right to be what he is. Uh, the illustration, to insist that anyone else shall comply with one's own standards is to outrage not only him but himself since both parties are equally born of necessity. Every man must do magic each time that he acts or even thinks, since a thought is an internal act whose influence ultimately affects action. Thought it may not do so, uh, though it may not do so at the time. So, and that's end quote there. So again, there's a science to it, there's an art to it. There's a science to it because it's, you know, there's a certain way things are done. There's an art to it because there's a lot of bringing out of intuition. And even if intuition is only the subconscious, which is processing things faster than the conscious mind, is cluing stuff in. But every man has an indefeasible right to be what he is. You can't, you know, you don't have the right to inflict you're what you want onto other people. You've got to do the work for yourself. And if other people are at different places or doing different things, that's their path, not yours. And they have the right to be able to do that so long as they're not infringing upon the rights and things of everybody else. 
It's talking about every man must do magic every time that he acts or even thinks. So every single thing, and again, this is the same thing that you'll get in Taoism or Buddhism or any of this other stuff to do. Every act, every time you think, everything, that is a meditative thing. And the more that you can make everything you say and do and think a meditative thing and proper uh, fashion to with nature or the Eightfold Path, whichever language you want to use for that, again, the more it's going to be easy to do, the more practiced you're going to be and the more in tune with sort of the nature of things that you're going to be. Uh, so, but this also goes in, now you can even think about it with, if we're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy from, was it Marshall Linehan? There's a, a CBT thought cycle and and this is actually, it's, it's a very helpful sort of thing to think about because it kind of strips some stuff down, and especially since I've worked with you know youth and adolescents and kids. This is a, a way to kind of strip it down. The very first thing you have is a thought. So even if it's a subconscious thought, even if it's something that happens very quickly, snap, bam, you have this thought. That thought creates an emotion, creates a feeling. And then we have a behavior, we have an action that is based on that feeling, whether it's something we say, something we do, more importantly, how we say or do something. That behavior, that action, then is put out into the to the world and you get a reaction from that outside world. And that reaction from the outside world then will uh, create a thought based on that reaction. So even if you take this down into like very deep sort of developmental psychology, if a baby does something, it's hungry, for example, and it cries because of that. So, you know, the brain might not have the language for it, but the brain is signaling hunger. The feeling is hunger. This is uncomfortable. I don't like this. Something's wrong. The action is crying. If the reaction from the outside world is negligence, that's going to influence the way the brain thinks of things. And the Jesuits were right, man. That zero to seven age zero to seven years age is super important for the development of then the adult so that reaction you get from the outside world even in a very um uns you know what we might consider an unsophisticated level of thought is still going to hit that cycle and still going to influence those things and that is going to continue on in this infinite cycle and those thoughts are going to constantly be influenced from the outside world. And that's going to create feelings, it's going to create behaviors, it's going to get anything from the outside world. And the more the outside world treats it a certain way, the more the thoughts are going to change to what goes on with that. So, if you want to change the reaction you get from the outside world, uh, you have to change your thinking. You know, of course, yes, you have to change your behaviors, but how do you change your behaviors? Well, I behave this way because I feel this. You feel that because there's a thought somewhere. And again, even if it's subconscious, that's why you got to do the shadow work. That's why, that's where real therapy comes in. Not just sort of like the rescue or feel-goodery sort of stuff, but actually getting into shit that is uncomfortable and you don't like it, but you got to look at it. And you got to deal with it got to come to terms and accept it change what you can and you know there are some things you can't 
If you've been traumatized, you can't change what has happened in the past. We can work on how your relationship with that trauma can evolve. You know, and even physically in the brain, sometimes if it's a heavy enough trauma, the way the amygdala works and everything else like that, it could have happened 10 years ago. And when you get triggered with it, it feels like it's happening right now. And in your actual physical brain is creating all the stuff in it that it feels like it's happening right now. So we've got to get into making everything, you know, a, a meditative, if magical or meditative or whatever word you want to use for it. Everything has to go with that. And it's not going to be perfect at first. No one's going to be. But again, it's, it's the consistent practice over time. I say this with my Tai Chi students and stuff all the time. Don't expect breakthroughs. I don't really go that harsh with it, but really, you can't really, you can't rely. Let me just put it this way. You cannot rely on breakthroughs. A big, big, huge, explosive moments is what I'm talking about. You'll have little ones. You have little stuff firing off. And once in a while, you will get a big thing to kind of burst through. Now, whether you want to deal with that or not is up to you. I suggest that if you have a big, uncomfortable thing that breaks through and you figure this out, keep doing the work with it because that's going to make it then integrate into you, which is what you want. Real therapy and real magic and real meditation, there's integration that goes on. But you, you need to go through it. But it's the, the consistent work that you put in with it. Doing the best that you can on the day that you can. Now the best that you can right the best you can do for yourself or something right now at this exact second as you're listening to this is going to be different than the best you could do for yourself even an hour before you're listening to this, even an hour after listening to this. You might be having an absolute fan frickin'tastic day. Tomorrow you might wake up with a migraine and things a little bit harder. Guess what? The best you can do is going to be different than it is today. But if you keep doing the best you can do, keep doing the integration or the magic or the meditation or the prayer or whatever words you use for it, and you're consistent with it, that's going to be where the real progress and change is going to come from. And you're going to look back sometimes and, and be like, huh, you know what? I didn't realize it. I've kind of come a long way. I used to react like this when this happens, or I used to think like that. I don't do that anymore. And maybe that breakthrough is you realizing, hey, something's different. And it's different in a good way that I like. You know, and but you gotta integrate that too. Uh, to continue on, uh, some of the things Crowley's saying is the most common cause of failure in life is ignorance of one's own true will, or of the means by which to fulfill that will. A man may fancy himself a painter and waste his life trying to become one. Or he may be really a painter, yet fail to understand to a measure the difficulties peculiar to that career. Again, I think that that's, again, the painter thing is an analogy and it's symbol. Because again, he's using true will, capital T, capital W. So it's the ignoring of your intuition. The ignoring of that feeling of, hey, something's off about this, or there's something nice about this. And you do the opposite 
you know, you, you just follow blindly along a certain path or not paying attention and you just feel something's always wrong about that, but you never chase it. You never even examine it. You know, that's, that's going to be something that's going to cause stress. That's going to be something that's going to cause even trauma and consternation in a person. Quote, Man is ignorant of the nature of his own being and powers. Even his idea of his limitations is based on experience of the past, and every step in his progress extends his empire. There is therefore no reason to assign theoretical limits to what he may be, what he may do. Man is capable of being and using anything which he perceives, for everything that he perceives is in a certain sense a part of his being. He may thus subjugate the whole universe of which he is conscious to his individual will. So, again, this is not just talking about, hey, I need money to be able to do stuff, and I perceive the money, so I'm just going to steal it. Or, I really want to bang this chick, and that's part of my true will is to be really awesome at that, so I'm just going to grab... No, 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 no. Again, this is symbolic. Uh, anything you perceive and and whether anything you perceive is a lesson or a symbol or being able to understand your connection to that so again there's talking about was every perceives is a certain sense part of his of his being so that the whole world around you without separation is really you You know, it's part of you and being able to connect with things. And there's going to be different stuff. It's going to be easier to connect with some other things than others. You know, the, you know, sort of platonic ideal of it, you might be able to connect more with uh, than other things. You know, it's like, was it if you watched um, early 2000s when the Matrix movies, especially the sequels were coming out, there was the Animatrix which was a series of sort of short animated films and they were all super depressing by the way but there was one where a guy basically broke himself out of the matrix um, and he was a runner and you know in the matrix he was a runner and he was like really top of his game and he kind of got in like this really hardcore zen zone with it and he was so good at getting in that sort of zen enlightened zone with it he popped himself out of the matrix just by running you know, so that was a thing of the outside world that he was able to use to connect. It might be painting, you know, it might be, you know, or you go with the sort of Herman Hesse uh, Siddhartha thing from that novella, you know, where the, the guy at the end who is sort of mirroring the life of the Buddha is a, a ferryman at the end of it, and the, his sort of connection, you know, mentally and psychologically and eventually spiritually with water helped him now be that enlightened sort of being. So you can use all this other stuff to be able to help yourself connect with everything, with yourself and therefore with everything. And, you know, he goes on to talk about some other stuff. It might be not super great. So, uh, reality is illusion. Free will is destiny. The self is not, is the not self, and so for every puzzle of the philosophy. So it's you know the idea of reality. We talk about reality as as this three dimensional thing that we feel with our five. I guess technically seven if you count a vestibular and proprioception, which I think are supposed to be 
parts of 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 all that now in terms of what we talk about the senses you know that's what we just think oh this is reality what I can touch here is reality well it's not it's an illusion because we have you know these other realities and these other sort of dimensions it, there's there's a really cool video it's about nine ten minutes long and it's Carl Sagan talking about Tesseract you can look it up on YouTube and the way he describes it is he's talking about how we in a three-dimensional space are almost trying to perceive things from fourth or fifth dimensions and the way he talks about you know a two-dimensional thing will will see a three-dimensional sphere as as a series of concentric circles sort of passing through their dimension and the way he talks about fourth, fifth dimension beings and stuff like that, well, we wouldn't perceive them as they are because we can't because they're coming in and perceiving in these different ways. Well, well, what if, you know, sort of higher ordered beings, gods, goddesses, you know, um, uh, spirit guides or something else are beings from those. He's not going into this part. I'm adding this is sort of but they're going into and understanding reality and our beings from these other things and trying to help us appreciate and and perceive these other dimensions that are reality beyond the sort of uh, limits that we have with our three-dimensional sort of meat processors of our brain and and sense organs you know it's like the the Cavill speech in the Battlestar Galactica the good one from the 2000s you know he's talking about you know I I want to perceive these these wondrous celestial events and I can't because you have limited me he's talking to like their the sort of um, Android Cylon kind of creators like you made us to be these to, to limit us to limit us like humans and I can't perceive what I want to perceive because I'm limited by this three-dimensional meat that they can't perceive things correctly I can't even express myself because I'm using this language so real reality capital R reality is beyond what we're able to sort of perceive and and talk about we can experience but it's not an experience that's just with eyes and and touching and tasting and things like that so if we're calling ourselves ourselves I'm John I'm a year old white guy from America that's not the real me these are definitions, parameters, limits that to get away from is going to help be able to then get to the truth, capital T truth, of me, so to speak.